In the book of Hebrews, last week we looked at uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We looked at these three men who were near death as uh, as the writer is bringing out different aspects of faith in this great chapter on faith. The, the, the greatest exposition on what faith is in all of the Bible, and he talked about the patriarchs. He talked about how they were challenged coming to the end of their life, but looking forward, which seems odd to us if we're looking at it in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm makes total perfect sense. So as we looked at that, and as these guys passed off the scene now, the writer in the book of Hebrews is he's continuing to move forward through the Bible. He's, he's ex- essentially doing an ex- extended Bible study with the people in the first century, these first century Hebrew Christians that were challenged, that were, their, their backs were against the wall in many ways. We've talked about that a number of times. And so, uh, Looking forward now, as he's going to get into Moses and his parents and all of that uh, in this chapter, I'm reminded in Genesis chapter 15, when God first came to Abraham, when he first came to him, he said, through you, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Uh, he, he goes on to say in Genesis 15, 13, he says, and God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Uh, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And so as we look at Egypt this morning, as we look at Moses and his interaction with the Egyptians and, and all of that, uh, it's important that we remember a couple of things. Number one, this is part of the divine record that the writer's bringing up because he wants to show that these people in the first century were not the only ones who were under persecution and affliction. Number two, he's showing that God has this. He has it under control. He's showing that prophetically now God had already spoken through to Abraham about this 400-year period of time where the, the children of Israel would come under heavy affliction from essentially the world. But Because Egypt is a type, it's a symbol, if you know the Old Testament, for the world. It points to uh, that aspect of humanity that lives its life in rebellion towards God, and that's what we look at as the world, as Christians, because there's the world, and there's us. Uh, I remember when I came out of the LDS church as a child, I grew up in the, in the Mormon church and came out actually in my mid-twenties right before I got saved, I, I was like, well, you know, as a young Christian, it's like, okay, well, there's Christians, and then there's the world, you know, kind of that evil system and all. And then there's people like the Mormons. And it was like, no, there's Christianity. There is being set apart for God. There is being one of his children. And there's the world. You could dress the world up in spiritual clothing all day long, and it's still the world. So, uh, and, and we get hit with things like that all the time. Our culture is just filled with things that will give you an enticement, a spiritual enticement, but it's sort of like junk food. Uh, I, you know, I, I loved Hostess Twinkies when I was a kid, and I know I'm dating myself, but I mean, I could power those things down. Uh, look at me, I, you could tell. But the point is, is that I mean, I, I, I loved all that stuff, and, and I could just eat junk food all day long, but it didn't bring any real nourishment in the end. And there's a lot of spiritual junk food out there, and, and so. Uh, I don't know where that came from, but that's for you, I, I trust, because it's not in my notes. 
the point is, is that up until now, the writer has been talking about known people. He talks about Abel, Enoch, Noah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And now he's going to go for a moment, it, before he talks about Moses, who's like the most famous guy in all of God's word, other than Jesus, uh, before he goes into that, he, he kind of gets into obscurity here, and he talks about Moses' mom and dad which is interesting to me because he turns to them to bring out some really good points. Uh, now, when we look at Moses, understand he's probably the most prominent man. He's definitely in the Old Testament, one of the most prominent in all of the scriptures, and he's really one of the most prominent men in history, in human history. Everybody knows Moses' name. I mean, his name is well known. And what he's going to talk about is the fact that Moses had to make choices. And those choices were either going to be driven by what he saw. Talked about that a lot. The writer in Hebrews talks about that a lot. Or by what he believed, which would often be in conflict with what he saw. That's what we experience too, guys. We see things, things happen in our lives. We, it's like, what's going on with all of that? And then the Lord challenges us. The Holy Spirit challenges us. Are you going to walk by faith on this? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to go the direction I might be showing you to go that is maybe even contrary to what you see? That's where we get challenged. And, and that's what the writer's wanting to do. He keeps going back to this because he knows it's not easy for these first century Christians. They are under it. And I just love the fact that this got recorded for us because the direct application to our lives. So by way of background, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, verse 6, it says, And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So all that stuff we looked at last week, you know, when these guys are there near death, well, now they are dead. And so is all of his brothers. So are all of the people in that whole generation. They passed off the scene. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. That's where the problem comes in. Pharaoh looks at this and he's not happy. So you have 12 families, essentially, what, 70, 90 people, whatever it was, uh, they go down to Egypt in over 400 years. There's now between one and a half and two million Hebrews. And, and in, in chapter one uh, of Exodus, verse eight, it says, now there arose a, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, it didn't mean that he didn't personally know Joseph. This is probably a couple hundred years after Joseph passed off the scene. But Joseph's name by that time had passed into obscurity. <laughs> I remember I used to do work with one of my companies. We did a lot of work for big corporations like 3M and CBS and these big corporate deals. And 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 every now and then, because corporations are corporations like they are, they would have a shuffling of their management. And I'd proven, our, our company had proven that we were trustworthy. We did business honestly. We did what we said we were going to do for a fair price. da 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 and then there'd be a new guy that came in, and I'd be like, oh, got to prove ourselves all over again. But that was just the nature of it. Well, here, it's because this guy did it. He's like, who's Joseph? I don't really care about Joseph. All I know is these Hebrews are getting really numerous, and we got to do something about it. And he says to his people, look. The people and the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of a war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So Pharaoh looks at the Hebrews, and he says, you know what? I'm not sure 
if they would side with us if we get attacked. So we need to do something about it. Therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Hebrews to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, <laughs> I like this, verse 12, Exodus uh, chapter two, chapter 1, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So it's just interesting to me, Pharaoh's plan here doesn't work. Uh, and it's something, if you look down, I, I'm a, a student, a loose student of church history. I don't get really into a lot of depth, but I, I understand church history. And, and historically, the church, when the church comes under pressure, the church blossoms, the church flourishes. When our faith gets put to the test, when I mean, it's so easy for us in this country, guys. And I understand and I accept the fact this is the culture we were born into. I've heard people like kind of like try to put a guilt trip out there because of it. It's like, no, we live where we live and, and we operate the way that we operate as a Christian community in a, in a nation that's free. And yet so often people who live in countries where persecution is the norm, the church is strong and the church buckles under, it buckles up. They, 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 they get to flourish in adversity. That's what's happening with Israel here. God had said to these people, be fruitful and multiply, and, and guess what? They were. Uh, and, and Pharaoh couldn't stop them. He couldn't stop them by persecuting them. So it's into this, into this whole deal, that Moses is born. So now... The, the Pharaoh had made an edict. He said, if there are any male child, children that are born, I want you to kill them. And, and they were to be thrown in the river. Well, there were midwives in that day, and, and the midwives, the Hebrew women would get to where they're delivering, and the, the midwives couldn't do it. I mean, maternal instincts are, instincts are strong. I, uh, get between a mama and her babies in any uh, whether it's humans or animals, those are strong instincts that kick in to protect. And the the, the Egyptian midwives told the Pharaoh, they said, well, uh, the women, they're hardy, they're, they're lively, is how it's put in the New King James, and, and they have their babies before we get there. So the Pharaoh gets, he gets kind of been out of shape about that. Uh, and in Exodus one twenty two it says, the Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born you'll cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So as we look at this, that's the scene. That's what's going on in Egypt as Moses is born. And interesting, if you look at his life, if you, you know, the, the way I like to teach is sort of zoom out and zoom in, but if you zoom way out, you see Moses' life is really broken down into three 40-year segments. He lived to 120, and from birth until 40, uh, there's things that are said here in God's Word, and then from 40 till 80, there's very little said. Pardon me. Um, but then when he's 80, God sort of re-engages him in the affairs of the Hebrews and the Egyptians, and and from 80 till 120, there's a lot, there's actually more written in that period, but there's more written about Moses here in Hebrews 11 than anybody else. So the writer wants to be sure because these guys know Moses. If you're a first century Christian and you came out of Judaism, you know who Moses is, and you look at him with a great deal of respect. You look at him with with uh, certainly a different way that you would look at the average Joe. He was a really important guy. So he grew up in Pharaoh's household the first 40 years. He would have been highly educated, 
highly educated, would have been multilingual. He knew at least three languages, we're told. Uh, he would have had great power, great authority, great influence. When he went down the street, people would wave or they would bow down because he became the equivalent of the prime minister of Egypt. He had the same type of status with Pharaoh as Joseph did 400 years before. And so he's a big deal. And so in this first 40 years, he came to enjoy anything that he wanted. I mean, it was his, and it was not just his a little bit, it was his in abundance. And so when we talk about here, when the writer goes into Moses chose to identify with the Hebrews rather than to endure the passing pleasures of sin, it was available to him. And yet he, by faith, was looking forward. Again, he was embracing the promises that were given to Abraham. So from 40 to 80, he spends in a place called Midian, the backside of Sinai, I used to go walking with some pastors. This is many years ago. We'd go out and walk and pray. And, and we were at this place in Northern California called the Sutter Buttes. And, and they're like these craggy, smallest mountain range in the United States. It's like eight miles long. And it's just these craggy, rocky, dirty, dusty mountains that stick up right in the middle of the Sacramento Valley. And we would be walking along and, and we, we called it going out walking and praying on the backside of Sinai because it kind of reminded us of that. Well, Moses was there when he was in Midian. He really, there's, like I said, there's not a lot to say. He learned how to shepherd sheep. <laughs> he went from being this really powerful guy to being a shepherd. And then he also became a husband and a father during that time. And he raised a family. And that's where uh, he learned a lot of lessons about life. It, folks, it, the mountaintops are great, but I'll submit to you, the fruit goes, grows in the valleys. It's not those times. It, it, so often it's during those times where it's relatively quiet in our lives, where God is doing his best work in us. I don't, even though there's not a lot said in the Bible about this 40 years in Moses's life, it's an extremely important period in his life. He wasn't being used publicly at that time, but God was building into him. God was shaping him into the man that he was going to use to deliver a nation. And, and so a, a great time from 40 till 80 in his life. From 80 till 120 years old, when he goes up on Mount Nebo, and, and Moses didn't die of illness. He didn't even die of old age. He died because God was finished with him. It says that the Lord just took his life. He goes up, he looks out over the promised land, out over Canaan. He wasn't able to go in because, remember, he had been told to speak to the rock at, at Horeb uh, the second time. And he struck it like he had the first time because he was frustrated with the people. And God said, because of that, you're not going in. But that was the end of his life. But from the time he was 40, when God commissioned him, there in Exodus chapter 3, we're not going to cover it, but in Exodus chapter 3, he goes before the burning bush and God says, I'm going to use you to deliver a nation. And everything that happened from the deliverance uh, from passing through the Red Sea and 40 years in the wilderness uh, where Moses' main ministry in his entire life took place. That's what happened during that period of time. So these three 40-year periods are what's talked about. Now, one of the things we're going to do as we go through this, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7 because if you, if you know the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, a guy by the name of Stephen is standing up to the religious leaders of his day. And and he is essentially recounting Israel's history, and he does a great deal. He summarizes a lot of what we have chapters and chapters in Genesis and in Exodus. He summarizes a lot of that. 
in Acts chapter 7. So I'm going to use that to kind of bounce off of as we go through this this morning because it, I like Stephen's summary. When we talk about somebody who at the end of their life that they suffered the reproach of Christ, after Stephen said these things, he, su- he suffered the, the reproach of Christ within minutes of speaking what we see in Acts chapter 7. He was executed. Uh, and, and so again, he was looking forward. We, and uh, boy, I could get off onto that. So to start, as we look at this, uh, that, that Moses was, he was number one, he was a deliverer. He was also a lawgiver. The first five books in your Bible were written by Moses, it's largely believed. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're called the five books of Moses, the law. Uh, and, and he, Interesting. I'm not going to go there. Never mind. Scratch that. Uh, we don't have a lot of time on communion Sundays, or I would. Uh, at any rate, the last thing that he did is he led the people, uh, and, and God developed him in him a great leader. All of his ministry was marked by faith, and that's the writer's point, and that's what we'll see as we go through this. In Hebrews 11.23, We see by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So this section, it it begins with the parents actually of Moses, not Moses, it's by faith Moses, but it's talking about his parents. Uh, And we see in Exodus chapter 6, their names were Amram and Jochebed. Um, And they exercised faith because they hid Moses uh, during this time of the king's edict, the Pharaoh's edict, that male children had to die, well, they hid him three months in their own home. And so I, it, the Bible doesn't say, but probably the baby's cries were getting louder, and, and or there may have been people around them that were finding out, and they were afraid of being turned in. They were afraid for not just Moses' life, but for their own as well, because they were violating the law. And so they hide him because they believe. When it says he's a beautiful child, there was something about him. I, I don't believe that that's just physical beauty. I don't think that that's just because he looked like Charlton Heston. Um, I know if you've ever seen that movie, you know, he's got the wavy, it looks like he got electrocuted, but, uh, you know, the whole deal there, but there was something about him. There was just something about him when they looked at him and, and I could go into a lengthier explanation, but the word beautiful child, Stephen talks about it too. There was something different. God spoke to them, I believe, about this child. There's something special about him. So he would have a significant place in God's plan. So three months later, I'll just summarize, his mother didn't want to expose their child, so she makes a basket, and she covers it with asphalt and, and pitch, uh, tar. Asphalt is in one of the translations, and uh, again, it could go into a big deal on that because the Romans mined asphalt from the Dead Sea. Uh, there were huge islands of it that would float to the top because of the oil-rich reserves and all that. So she covers this thing. She waterproofs the basket. She puts him in the reeds of the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter is going down to take a bath, and she hears the baby crying. She goes over, and she sees the baby. And again, that maternal instinct thing kicks in. She knows her dad has got a death sentence on every male child. And in her mind, is well, every male child except this one, because she sees her, goes, her heart goes out, and she pulls the baby out of the river. Now, 
Moses' mother had been looking from a distance and she sends Miriam, Moses' sister, up to talk to the Pharaoh's daughter. And she goes, and, and the Pharaoh's daughter says, this is a Hebrew baby. So again, she recognizes this is not an Egyptian child. This is a Hebrew child, a Hebrew baby. And, and so Miriam goes up and says, well, you know, with that Hebrew baby, would you like to have somebody to be a nursemaid to him? And she says, yeah, go get. And so Moses' mother and God's, I love God's providence in these things. It's just amazing to me. Moses' mother, who was surrendering her child, putting him in the river because she didn't want to see him get killed. She's just like uh, believing God and taking her chances. She ends up getting her baby back legally now and can have a hand in raising him. Uh, just amazing. And so many of Moses' actions, again, they're not recorded, but you have to believe that his mother poured into him about the promises of God, about the, the, the covenant given to Abraham, and about the Hebrew people, because he develops a heart through his, his life for the Hebrew people. So that's the first 40 years. In Acts chapter 7, it says, When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham. This is what Stephen is saying now to the people in the first century. So Stephen begins this by referencing, this is all about the promises given to Abraham. We've looked at that in the last several studies. That's what it is. And he's, again... You have to look at what these people's posture was. I'm not going to look at my immediate circumstances. I'm going to believe that God is doing something, something that he spoke to Abraham. It went to Isaac. It went to Jacob. It now goes to the people. And he said it would be 400 years before you come out of this mess. And I fulfill my promise. So uh, he talks about that in Acts chapter 7. In verse 20, he says, At this time Moses was born, uh, and, and that he was well-pleasing, or beautiful, again, to the Lord. Uh, he was brought up in his father's house for three months, but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So again, he became a very, very prominent figure in the Egyptian culture. In verse 24, we start, we begin to look at now the faith of Moses. Uh, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, Egypt at this time would have been the wealthiest, most advanced society in the known world. It was a very, very powerful nation. Uh, I remember I used to love to go to museums, and I remember going and, and seeing an Egyptian display where they talked about the the, the northern dynasty and the southern dynasty and, and all of the art that went with it and all that. But uh, very, very powerful dynasties in that area. And through again, through the known world, they had a mighty army, and they were a very wealthy, wealthy nation. Especially after Joseph showed them how to bank their crops and not suffer 400 years before when there was a drought in the land. They learned very advanced technologies for that day. My microphone's bugging me today. So he's a prominent guy. He's been a prince in Egypt for 40 years. Uh, he's been raised in the royal household. Uh, he essentially, he had the best that the world could offer. Uh, he was again, highly educated, multiple languages, power, riches, recognition, recognition, prestige, uh, known to the people. 
at some point, though, God had revealed to Moses that he had a special plan for him. Again, we take that by deduction. It's not revealed specifically. But when Stephen gives the review of Moses' life in Acts chapter 7, in verse 25... Uh, this is after Moses. Now, what happened with Moses is Moses was out one day and he saw one of the Egyptian slavers, a taskmaster, beating a Hebrew slave, and he killed the guy and stuck his body in the sand. The next day, he goes to uh, a couple of Hebrews that are fighting and he goes to break it up. The guy says, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you did the guy yesterday? And and so what what when Stephen recounts this in Acts chapter 7... It says that he, that he supposed, Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they didn't understand. Moses understood, but they didn't understood what was going on, understand what was going on at that time. So somewhere along the line, by the time he reached the age of 40, Moses had understood that God was going to use him. Again, not a lot said about it, but you can definitely infer from that passage in Acts chapter 7 that Moses knew ahead of time that something was going to take place. So going to verse 26, well, actually finishing up verse 25, it says that that rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, that, that he identified with the people of God, with the Hebrews of the day. And when we look at that, we look at so often in our lives, we look at what the world has to offer. I've shared with you guys, spent north of 40 years in the advertising business. I know what a limited time offer is. You turn on television late at night. Yeah, limited time offer. Pick up your phone. Call now. We'll double it. You can have two for the same price. The whole deal. And the world, I'll tell you what, the God of this world knows how he comes as an angel of light. And those fiery arrows, those fiery darts, those fiery spears that he hurls at us sometimes look good. I knew a brother many years ago that said he was teaching in, in uh, he, Ephesians chapter 6 about the flaming arrows, the missiles of the enemy, uh, holding up the shield of faith and all. And he said, I can't go to the mall. I can't go to the shopping mall. And it was like, well, why is that? And he said, because they're good looking fiery darts. I just can't do it. It just triggers. I just struggle. And, and yeah, I thought it was funny, but he was really being honest. He was identifying areas where the enemy would love to get a hold of him through some limited time offer. That's what sin does. So Moses here, he chooses, he's got all that he could ever have and then some. All that, if he wanted it, it was his. If he wanted to engage in some act or something, it was his. He had the power, he had the authority, he had the position in Pharaoh's house, everything the world had to offer. And he said, no, I I would rather identify with these Hebrews, with my brothers, with my countrymen, with the people of God, as it says here, than to go with the passing pleasures of sin. Because sin is pleasurable. But it's there and it's gone. And then you're left with the ramifications of sin, with with dealing with the fallout from all of that. Uh, I just can't tell you enough how many countless lives have been wrecked because the allure has been there and, and, and the lack of the will engaging in that to say, no, that's passing pleasure. I'm identifying with the people of God. And you can't be too old to be tempted, folks. I'm telling you, 
that's where the rubber meets the road. It's, I, I don't have time to go to say more, but you gotta understand, uh, that's what God's will is. We get challenged with the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26, that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now, what do you mean he considered the reproach of Christ? This is like way Old Testament, way, way, way Old Testament. And he's talking about Moses and the reproach of Christ. Well, you gotta understand a couple of things here about that. Number one, the Hebrew word is Mashiach. And, um, that is not Jesus necessarily they looked for a messiah all the way back to to genesis when man fell and and god when he pronounces the curse on humanity he talks about one will come and and he he will bruise your heel or he will bruise his heel speaking of jesus speaking of messiah but messiah would crush his head talking about the serpent and so all the way back the people had been looking for the promised one. And so when he talks about the reproach of Christ, he's talking about the reproach of Messiah, the one that would come. And he talked about greater riches. So they were, in that sense, they were suffering. The Hebrew people in Moses' day were suffering the reproach of Christ, the same as the Hebrews in the first century that the writer here in Hebrews is writing to. Does that make sense? So what is, the question becomes then, what is the reproach of Christ? Jesus gives the answer in, in the Gospel of Luke, and it's in the other uh, synoptic gospel, Gospels as well. In Luke 21, he says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's the reproach of Christ. When I talk about Stephen, after he gives this whole speech to the religious leaders, there's a guy named Saul holding their coats and all, and they pick up rocks and they execute him. That's the reproach of Christ. When you stand up for Christ in your family or in your home or in your job, and I'm not talking about being obnoxious. Um, I know how to do that. But, you know, I'm talking about when, when you simply stand up for Christ. No, I really am not interested in that. I, I worked in a, a, a shop with a bunch of guys. It was like, oh, my gosh, it's like working with a bunch of contractors. And if you're a contractor, it's no offense. But, uh, I mean, there's a whole language that's spoken that way, you know. At any rate, and and I just kind of kept to myself and kept to my own area. And they accused me of being uppity and, and being, you know, all of this. It was like, no, I'm just quietly going about my business. I really don't want to engage and listen to you guys talk about your conquests, your antics and all that other stuff. It's just not interesting to me. But I wasn't like in their face about it. Again, the reproach of Christ. You stand up for God. You stand up for Christ. You stand up for the gospel. And you will suffer that reproach. Not my opinion. That's what Jesus said. And he said that it will happen. Not it might. It will. And as we live our lives, that's just something that you understand as you grow in Christ and as you mature as a believer, it comes, you know, it comes with the territory. You know that that's just the way it is. And I used to get my feelings all bent out of shape and, and, and just sideways and messed up in times past. And, and yeah, somebody I cares about comes against me. That's one thing, but you, you just learn that part of walking with the Lord is, is having a soft heart and a thick hide. Uh, it's just part of it because not everybody's going to like you when they know that you're a Christian. They don't like you because they don't like light. And you sometimes don't even have to say a word. I have walked into a room and I have not had to say a word. 
And, and I know that it's the light of Christ in me that is causing people to just say, I don't want, I, I don't, definitely don't want to talk to John. But it's just that, that whole dynamic that's there. So that's part of what the reproach of Christ is. Uh, suffering affliction, as it says in verse 25, with the people of God. That's what it is. That's part of how that's defined. So how did Moses suffer the reproach of Christ? Three ways. The first way he did and what brought him to suffering this reproach was he, by saying, I'd rather be Jewish than Egyptian. Think about it. He knew he was set apart and he lived set apart. As a result, he came under great criticism. He came under threat of death when he stood up for the Egyptians and all, or for the Hebrews and all that. So by saying, I'd rather be Jewish, which was, he knew he was Jewish. He knew he was a Jew. He knew he was an Israelite. I would rather be that than have all that I've had in Egypt, than have all that the world has to offer. That set him up for great reproach, for criticism, for people to be critical of his life. The second is by knowing and understanding that God was at work even with all these slaves. That set him up for the reproach of Christ. He knew that there was something bigger going on. And he lived that way. By faith, he understood that God was doing something greater than these Hebrews who are all now in bondage and they're having to make bricks without straw and the whole deal. He understood that. That's what set him up to suffer the reproach. The third is by saying, by faith, I'll be associated with God's promises. He understood, not by name, he didn't know who Jesus was specifically, but he understood that the Christ... That Messiah would be the one who fulfilled the covenant given to Abraham. And he had his eyes on the prize as far as the covenant given to Abraham goes. And so, again, these things just worked in his life to where he knew that he was set apart. He knew he was living for more than Egypt. And he knew that by claiming to be part of the family of God, that that set him up for great difficulty. And he did it anyway. That's the point. That's the reproach of Christ talking, talked about here. So the writer rightly connects the reproach that Moses experienced with the reproach of Christ because he chose to identify with these guys. Uh, the first century believers, that, again, keeping in mind, this is being written to people in the first century who are under great persecution, who are under great difficulty. They understood what he was saying. When he's talking about Moses, I mean, the guys, again, doing a Bible study with him. And they understood that when he spoke of Moses, when he spoke of that, that, wow, I could identify with the reproach of Christ. I'm suffering the reproach of Christ too. They had separated from Judaism. They had been separated from their families. And they were going through a lot in their lives as a result. And the writers wanting them to connect the dots, so to speak, they're the people in Egypt were suffering because they were set apart and they were the people of God. And Moses identified with them. He's saying to the Hebrews in the first century, look, you're not the only ones who have suffered this reproach. You're not the only ones who have suffered persecution. You're not the only ones who have had it really tough. Look back at your own nation's history and see what God's done through that and through them. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, 
not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's a fascinating verse. I think that that verse really spells or sums up this whole aspect of the passage that we're in. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He learned to endure by faith, not looking at what was immediately in front of him, great difficulty, but looking towards the fulfillment that God had yet to work out. He understood it. He took it. And he believed it, but he endured what he was going through then because his eyes were on the prize. In the first century Christians, now this isn't the first time this this concept has been brought up in Hebrews. Uh, the first century Christians needed repeated encouragement. Look beyond the physical. Look beyond what you see. Look beyond your circumstances. And the writer has several times by now in this letter let them know there's value in that. Don't look at the seen world. Look at the unseen. Now, the second 40-year period in, in Moses' life, uh, going back to Acts chapter 7 and verse 23, uh, 23 through 29, we're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, it's in verse 23 of Acts chapter 7, Stephen's still speaking here, says, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So that's when he struck down the Egyptian. That's when the next day the guys were fighting and all of that. And they said, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? It says, then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. So he meets a guy by the name of Jethro. And Jethro uh, is impressed because he helps his daughters you know, water the flocks and all. And, and one of his daughters, Zipporah, uh, is Jethro sees to it that Moses gets hooked up with her. They get married and they begin a family. And so during this time, again, not a lot that's said in, in the word of God. There's a, 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 we could go into it, but I just don't, I don't want to take the time this morning. But suffice it to say, Moses was learning how to, how to work as a commoner. He went from the opulence of Egypt to sheep. <laughs> it's kind of a, you could look at that as a demotion in your job. Uh, so he learned how to do that. He learned how to uh, love his wife and have a family. And that's what he did. And he did that faithfully for 40 years. And I would imagine during that 40 years, I mean, you're standing out in the desert and all you've got is a bunch of bleeding sheep and you're all by yourself. You've got some time with God. And I have to believe that Moses had a growing thing inside of him. That, Lord, I, I, I knew, I believed that you had something bigger than this. I, I believe that you're using, you showed me that you wanted to use me. And yet it's all about the timing, folks. Something that I've learned in ministry and in life in general is it's not just knowing the right thing to do, but it's knowing when to do it and how to go about it. We can all know the right thing to do. And, and perhaps that's with another person or it's with a job or with whatever it is. We can know the right thing, but there is huge value in just being committed to keeping that before the Lord, keeping it in prayer, saying, Father, you know, whether it's maybe it's having a family, whatever it is, and just saying, I'm laying this at your feet, and I'm going to pray that in your timing, you're going to bring this about. And I have to believe, again, not a lot said, I have to believe that that was the posture of Moses' heart. That when that burning bush showed up that day, 
that he was then at that point ready for God to align circumstances to bring his purposes about not only in his life, but in the lives of a million and a half or two million people. It's all about the timing, folks. And I remember when Stacy and I began the Lord to, to sense the Lord calling us here to Oregon, to an existing church. And we wanted to be near her parents because they're getting older and all of that. That was in 2013. And, and I mean, we just prayed. And, and as we prayed, there, it was like the Lord sharpened the details of the vision that we had for serving him. And frankly, I got to the point where I kind of gave up. That's when I took a job in Colorado in corporate management and went, okay, Lord, maybe that wasn't you. And I was there for two months and my phone rang and the, the Lord began to align the circumstances for calling us here. Again, it's all about his timing. I, it, it, the, the Lord, it, it, the Bible says that we establish our plans and that's a good thing, but the Lord orders our steps. I love the, the, the ditty, uh, plan in concrete, operate in jello. Because you gotta be flexible. You've gotta be flexible for God's timing to come about with whatever that is. For us, it was four years. Had no clue what God was doing in the meantime. And when my phone rang in Fort Collins, Colorado, and looked down and I saw a guy's face, I know there's a pastor here in this area, and he said, hey, there's a church, you're interested, uh, in looking at it. There had been some family issues that came up two days before I had booked a plane flight to Portland. I said, yeah, I'm interested, Doug. I'll look at it. He goes, well, when can you get to Portland? I started laughing. I said, I'll be there Friday. What? I booked a flight two days ago. What? (laughs) I was told later they got off the phone and and him and the guy that was in his office looked at each other and said, did that just happen? (laughs) But it was God's timing. That's the point. And, And even when we get weary of waiting for his promises to come about, it doesn't stop him from carrying out his promises. And uh, Stacey and I couldn't be blessed, by the way, because we just love you guys. And we love what God's doing in this little church, and we love what he's doing in our lives. Praise him. So the third 40 years here in Acts chapter 7, verse 30 through 36, uh, it says, When 40 years had passed, the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. So God's speaking to him. He says, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I'll send you to Egypt, speaking to Moses. And that's where Moses says, oh, you got the wrong guy. I have a speech impediment or whatever it was. He said, I don't talk well. He said, that's fine. I'll get your brother to do your talking for you. You're still going. Um, <laughs> paraphrasing, but that's exactly what happened. It was like, oh, well, so much for excuses for God. Um so uh, it says in Acts 7.36 that Moses brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, the ten plagues, remember? And each one of those plagues was an insult to an Egyptian deity. Uh, every one of them. I'd love to spend time and go into that, but uh, we don't have time this morning. But uh, again, Stephen summarizing here the, the history of Moses in Egypt. It says that he'd shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years beyond that. Verse 28, by faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Remember uh, that 
they went through this whole deal where the tenth plague was going to be the plague of death. And, and he tells Moses, look, have the people of Israel slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts and all of that. And tonight, when the angel of death goes through the land and kills the firstborn, anybody whose blood is over their house will be saved. Great picture of the gospel. Again, could go into detail on that. Every aspect of that Passover points to a fulfillment, a future reality, a greater reality. We've talked about that, a greater reality that would be fulfilled by Jesus himself. So that's what he's talking about. He says they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. You know, I've, I've heard people uh, talking to a guy who was at a, doing a memorial service in Arizona in January of this year. And the guy I was talking to in the evening, we were in a house that the uh, person had graciously supplied for both of us. And he and his wife were there. And he said, well, I've read these books. The Egyptians, they didn't really, you, you know, they... Moses didn't really go through this huge sea. There was probably a big wind that came up and it piled up the waters. And, and I just said, well, how does that explain the Egyptian army dying if it was only two feet deep? He said it was two feet deep and and all of that. I mean, and, and I asked this guy as we went, as we shared, it, 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 it went till after midnight talking with this couple. I had a great time talking with him. I, I just said, let me ask you something, Bob. In the books that you're reading, is there any credence given at all to the supernatural, the beyond the natural, to the miraculous? And he kind of thinks for a minute. He goes, no, John, I don't think there is. Because that's the problem. You've got to understand that when God operates, it's not miraculous to him. He's just being God. It's, it's miraculous to us because we see the laws of physics and he goes, oh, I think I'll bend those. And he does. <laughs> it's, he's God. He can, he owns, he created it. He can do it. If he wants to pile up the waters of the Red Sea and let his people go through, all he has to do is speak a word. Oh, Moses, by the way, I'm going to put this on you. Hold up your staff. But that's, you know, when, when they were fighting the guys and all. So it's not miraculous to God. It's miraculous to us. And he's like, that really got him thinking. I was like, you know, I don't understand that there are men writing these books. You are really missing the point that, that God exists in a realm where he owns it all. It's his ball. It's his ball game. He makes the rules and he invites us to play. You get that backwards. You're going to come up with all kinds of goofy ideas and explanations about who God is and what he can and can't do. Here, God uses Moses, delivers these people miraculously out of the the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and then he sustains them for 40 years. By faith he kept the Passover sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by on dry land, where the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. I want to go back as we wrap up this morning. I want to talk about verse 27 where it says that by faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And then it tells us why. It says, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul, uh, he's been going along, he's been giving the people uh, uh, just a beautiful exposition of our inheritance, the inheritance we have in Christ. And, And then he begins to pray. He spontaneously breaks in. I love that. When you're reading Paul's writings, 
Very often, he'll begin to either pray or he'll begin to worship and he'll begin to, to praise as he goes. Well, at this point, Paul stops and he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. So what does that mean? Enlightened how? What what are you talking about, Paul? And, and essentially, the answer is that the eyes of our hearts, this stuff will not make sense to us unless we are operating under the enlightening that only God can give. Supernatural enlightening. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, again, the, the Apostle Paul writing of the mystery, he says, to you it's been given to know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. He says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. He's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about people who have not come to faith, who have not come to seeing the unseen. He says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. He's giving us spiritual eyes. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. So when he says, I pray the eyes of your hearts be enlightened. He's talking about being given spiritual vision. It's not physical vision. It's a spiritual thing. It's spiritual dynamic. It doesn't automatically go to everybody. It goes to people who have what the Bible says, loved his appearing. It goes to people who are part of his covenant people. If you have come to faith in Christ, then he opens himself to you. It, yes, there are seasons of the Spirit. There's the, the with and the in and the upon of the Holy Spirit. The, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I have been with you and I will be in you. Or he is with you, but he will be in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and again, the Spirit of Christ and, and that he will come upon you. This is the with and the in and the upon. The with is prior to Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is revealing the truth of the gospel. After that, he guides our life. He opens our understanding. He gives us enlightenment. He gives us a deep understanding. He opens God's word. So when he says that, he, he, he's saying there's three things. He goes on in Ephesians here. Three things come about uh, that he's praying for. He says that you may know the hope to which he's called you. And when we look at that and we compare that to what we're seeing in Hebrews, by faith Moses saw the hope to which he'd been called. He saw it even when he was in Midian. He saw it especially when he was in Egypt, but he saw it after that in that second 40-year period. He knew, and he knew that when the burning bush showed up, God had something for him to do. And so by faith, he embraced those things and he forsook Egypt. He understood that Egypt was not his home. And he could only see that because God had revealed that to him all through his life, being reared by, yeah, by Pharaoh's daughter, but also by his own family, also by his own countrymen. By faith, we hope in salvation in this life, also in the one to come. We see through the eyes of our hearts. That's why it's so important that we, that we operate as seeing that which is not seen. That's what the writer's point is with Moses. That's what the writer's point is with the first century Hebrew Christians. And that's what God's will is for us. Very often, a life of faith is marked by seeing a contrast, a difference between what I see and what I don't see. Uh, He's just driving that home with these people. Uh, The second thing 
that we look at here, uh, he, he says, that you may know, uh, I pray that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So by faith, again, Moses understood the promises to Abraham. He understood the promises to his people. He knew that there was something greater than Egypt. By faith, he saw the inheritance that they had, and he acted upon it. Remember, show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Faith produces action. Genuine faith produces action. It's not just, oh yeah, I believe, what's for lunch? It, 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 there's truly, there's if I truly believe it, then it'll produce action in my life. Because it says that he was seeing the greater riches ahead than those that he had in Egypt. And he had a lot in the physical realm. But he saw the riches in the spiritual realm, and that's what he went for. Canaan was a type and a shadow of the greater reality to come. Our glorious inheritance is, in a word, heaven. That's why the gospel begins with, if you died today, would you go to heaven? That's our hope. That's what we live for. That's our inheritance. And yeah, part of our inheritance is having an abundant life here because we learn to live like this. Because we learn to walk by faith. We learn to live not at the effect of being tossed around by all the circumstances that come into our lives and the trials we go through. We learn to walk with our eyes on a greater reality. We learn to walk with the eyes of faith, not just what we see. Ultimately, we're looking for heaven. We're looking for that city which the builders built without hands that the Hebrew writer has been talking about here. We're looking for that. That's our hope. Our inheritance is in Christ. The third thing that Paul says in Ephesians, he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. By faith, Moses trusted in God's power to deliver his people. By faith, Moses trusted in God's ability to sustain them for 40 years. Shoes didn't wear out. Food every morning. Miraculous water in the middle of nowhere. And I've been out there. It's, it's the middle of nowhere. Um, he trusted for the people in Israel. The writer's encouraging the first century Hebrew believers to hold on, to trust in God's power to deliver. I know it's hard right now. I know it's tough. He's, that's what he's there to encourage them on. And he's saying, look, don't look to that which you can see, because right now it is really hard. Look to that which you can't see. Look to the Lord in these circumstances, and your circumstances will begin to fade as far as the, the, the way that they've captured your heart, captured your mind, captured your life. You don't have to live at the effect of them. Wrapping up here, the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter speaks both of the hope and the inheritance that we have in Christ. In First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we read this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, you're going through it, is what he's saying, may be found a praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Whom having not seen, you love. 
Though now you don't see him, yet believing, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving in the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. It's a glorious passage, folks. As we look at this, and when we look at Moses' life here in Hebrews, we see, again, what the writer's point is. He's, he's encouraging those people in the first century to, to live and to walk by faith. To, to, he, he's essentially including himself in that, saying, look, this is what we have in Christ. It's not going to always line up with the, with the seen world. It's going to line up with the unseen. And as you know God more, you understand his word more, his Holy Spirit reveals more as you walk with him longer, because as we go along, we learn we're all in process. We're all growing. We're all in different places with the Lord. And yet he's saying there are universal principles that come to bear. Walking by faith, walking by what we don't see is really key to understanding what a life of peace and rest and joy is about. Because I'll tell you what, if you're depending on your circumstances for that, they're going to change. They're going to shift. You're going to end up with a heavy load. You're going to be wondering, why is God mad at me? Which is not the right attitude to have because he's not mad at you. He's allowing these testings, these trials in your life because he's working something greater in you to pull your eyes off the circumstances and onto him, onto the the faithfulness of Christ in our lives. That's how this stuff works. The writer's being very clear. It's Moses went through it, guys. You're going through it. I'm going through it. But there's a greater reality that we see through the eyes of our hearts not necessarily through the physical eyes that we have. They were learning to endure. That's the bottom line here, as seeing him who is invisible. That's what works in our lives as well. it's, It's seeing, we learn endurance through the things that we go through as seeing him who is not visible to our, to our, to the naked eye. But again, through the eyes of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in Hebrews. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you bring by your Holy Spirit to each of us.